Welcome to the Wait Park Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Wait Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We do everything we do because we believe life with Jesus is better. If you like what you hear, we'd love to have you swing by and join us for worship. We meet on Sundays at 10 a.m. and have other groups and ministries on various days of the week. You can learn more by going to wakeparkchurch.org. Uh, but that continues on, and uh, and it's I I actually you notice that I'm not really in preaching attire today. I'm I'm wearing this shirt that says "Celebrate Immigrants," and uh, and it's actually swag that Emma got from the uh, training that she went to. That's one of the benefits of being a senior pastor of of a church that's starting an immigrant connection is you get lots of swag. So uh, I thought I would do this, and also. Uh, the other reason that I wore it today is because today uh, I had mentioned that our messages this summer are going to be based on testimonies. You know, we just went through the book of Acts, uh, of Luke and Acts, but through the book of Acts, and one of the primary uh, themes that goes through the book of Acts is, is that you will be my witnesses, and uh, you see that over and over and over, how the apostles are going through. They, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And, and of course, that happened. And, and, and actually, we are the ends of the earth, by the way. Uh, we are not Jerusalem. We are the ends of the earth. And, um, and so what's really cool about that is, is that then we also get to be witnesses. And, of course, some of that means that we are witnesses to the life, death, resurrection, and kingship of Jesus. But it also means that we are to witness to what God is doing in our lives. And um, last week, I got the privilege, again, of hearing the story of actually one of my favorite immigrants. And uh, it's, it's kind of strange to call Jed an immigrant because he's been in the U.S. longer than I have. Uh, <laughs> but at the same time, that's a, that's a big part of his story as well. And, uh, and, and I thought this would be kind of a fitting way for us to get started when we're talking about being witnesses and sharing our testimony uh, because there are very few people who just have a passion for sharing their testimony or passion for sharing Jesus than Jed Hamoud. So Jed, I want you to come on up here and join me and, uh, and let's, hear, let's hear your story. Everybody, let's hear it for Jed. All right, do you have your, do you have your body pack turned on there? Uh, Got any lights on there? No okay, hold the button down until you get a light. Green light? Green light, that's good. Green means go. Am I okay? Okay. Okay, we'll, we'll let the sound guy adjust from here. So, All right, Jed, thanks so much for, uh, for uh, agreeing to do this. I know that uh, sometimes getting up in front of people isn't everyone's cup of tea, but it never mm. seems to really bother you that much. Not really. <laughs> no, okay. But as, so as we get started today, uh, there are some people who have known you for many, many years, and there are others who have no idea who you are. And so why don't you fill people in? Uh, who are you? Uh, what, are, what are you doing here? And uh, maybe, uh, you know, how long have you been at Waite Park? Uh, talk about your family, some of those other things. Well, first, thank you for giving me this uh, chance to uh, share uh, with you what uh, the Lord has done in my life. I, I wish I was uh, eloquent enough as, as a speaker to be able to tell it without using the word I <laughs> or me. Because really it's God's story, not my story. And, but I'm not very, you know, uh, eloquent at that. So I'm just 
forgive me for using the word I or me. <laughs> so thank you for having me here uh, to share uh, what God has done in my life. Uh, Becky and I, we have uh, four uh, biological children, and uh, then we have raised a couple more children. Some of you know them, Cham and Lloyd, and they've been part of our family. And uh, we moved to Minnesota back in 1985, and around in early 90s, 92, 93, something around there, uh, we start coming to Wade Park Church. And uh, we were looking for a church uh, where uh, our kids uh, have classmates that go to. So we want them to have friends in church and school as well. And we ran into the Slys and the Kindies. Uh Laura was in Brent's grade, and Danny was in Kent's grade, and Sarah was in Brent's grade, and uh, Stephen was in Kent's grade. So we found about Wood Park, and we came and visited here, and uh, uh, Pastor Fisher uh, gave us a, a visit, and uh, we, we kind of felt, hmm, this is the place we want to be. And so we start coming here, and then I remember when we uh, left our first Sunday, and Kent came out, and, and we asked him, how was, was Sunday school? Oh, it was great. Stephen is there, and Daniel is there. and Oh, it feels like school. Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so uh, at Wade Park, we met good friendship and uh, good connections, and uh, some of the people we met here, we made good friends there, you know, gone before us, and some of you are still here uh, with us. And so, uh, post uh, my career, I don't use, like to use the word retirement, because <laughs> uh, so we, uh, Becky and I have been uh, busy um, in different kinds of ministries. Becky serves uh, full, pretty much full-time. She says part-time which is usually Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Mondays, and Wednesdays. <laughs> but uh, that's part-time. And uh, at uh, Bibles for Missions. And, uh, and uh, Brother Kindy and I uh, both uh, are privileged to serve on the uh, trust, serve as trustees for Child Evangelism Fellowship uh, here in Minnesota. And uh, so we're blessed uh, in that area, and giving ministry like, you know, I'm doing today. Yeah. All right, so um, when, I, when I think about Jed, there are, there are two things that really stand out, and this would apply to you and also to your wife, Becky, as well. The first thing is uh, radical hospitality, and we'll talk a little bit more about this at the end. Wait, wait a minute. I've never had anyone call me radical. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you're a radical. Uh, Maybe Becky. Yeah. <laughs> radical hospitality. Uh, in other words, they have housed, uh, well, I, I mean, I don't think it's quite countless because you counted. Uh, over the course of your marriage, 45 people that were not your family, like in your home like living with you for various lengths of time, right? So they've opened up their home for people who, who need a place. And so that's one of the things I think about. The other thing that I think about is, is that uh, Jed has an incredible heart for people to know Jesus. 
particularly for Muslims. Um, and you know that, uh, I mean, you may not, you probably don't know, I mean, many of you. Uh, but, uh, but even here, you know, he hangs out with the Muslim community and he has a Muslim background himself. Um, and, uh, and so he talks to them about Jesus all the time. And uh, one of the things that I've, I've learned about uh, life is that oftentimes our passions come from our experience. Uh, in other words, you know, whatever it is that you just have to do, there's probably something in your background that planted the seeds for that. And I think when you hear Jed's story, what you'll find out is that that is absolutely true for him. That both of those things, whether it's radical hospitality or a desire for people to know Jesus, come from a deep sense of what God has done uh, in his story. And so, Jed, I want you to talk about a little bit um, maybe how, where you grew up. You know, you gave us sort of the, the current and all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, where did you grow up? What was life like for you growing up? For those of you that don't know me, I know some of you do and have heard my story before, but for those of you who haven't, uh, uh, I'm, uh, you know, we say, are you Lebanese, are you Syrian, are you Jordanian, are you American, are you Canadian? Well, I'm actually a Bedouin. Uh, Bedouins are the Arab uh, nomads. Uh, Being a nomad, you live in a tent. And you move around, you roam around in the region you live in. And uh, so that's my first identity uh, as, uh, on earth, is, is, a, is a Bedouin. Uh, my Bedouin tribe lived in what the, the central uh, valley of Lebanon, primarily. And they roamed between Lebanon and Syria. And uh, so the, the, uh, the, uh, the Bedouins made their living from raising sheep and goats and camels and donkeys and what have you. And my dad was blind. And being a blind person, it's pretty tough to herd uh, goats. People with this, both eyes cannot herd goats. <laughs> Ask farmers. And... Uh, so let alone what, when you don't have your, your uh, sight. And so what my family used to do is send the sheep and goats with the other shepherds. We didn't have, have that many. You know, we had maybe, I don't know, six, seven, eight sheep and goats combined together. Uh, well, an average family, Bedouin family, could have as much as 100, 200, 300 heads of sheep and, or goats and goats. And so we, we had very little compared to the rest of the tribe. So we used to, the uh, other shepherds would take our sheep and goats and out with them with pasture. So when I was about five years old, the, my parents felt that maybe, you know, they should contribute something. Uh, one thing about Arabs is p- pride, you know. And, and so for them, you know, it was a prideful thing is to say, well, we're trying to do something to take care of our own goats and sheep versus relying on the other shepherds from the tribe to do that. So they start sending me out with the shepherds, thinking that those guys will take care of me and help me out, and I'll be there more just kind of uh, symbolic. While being out in the fields, uh, 
there are things start happening that were not right, and I was being abused by some of the older shepherds. And, and uh, so my, one day when my mother was giving me a bath, which was very rare, uh, and, and so they, she discovered the uh, abuse I was uh, being subjected to. So she told my dad, and she screamed and, you know, hollered, and, and the word got out in the rest of the tribe that, you know, what was happening, and the chief of the tribe, at, at that time, the chi- tribe was split. There's part of the tribe in Syria and part of the tribe in Lebanon. My family was part of the tribe that was in Syria. And so, the, and the chief of the tribe was with part of the tribe that was in Lebanon. So when the word got to him and so on, so he came, and that's his job as a chief of the tribe, to settle disputes and so on. So he came to, to our house, uh, our tent, and to, to settle this uh, dispute. And, and so at the end of the day, he kind of started blaming my mom and dad for being stupid and naive and how can you send a five-year-old out there, blah, blah, blah. And anyway, the end result is he picked me up, put me on the horse behind him, and we, off we went uh, to his place. Uh, so, and I lived with the chief of the tribe for two years. Uh, then... Uh, foreigners at that time, I did not know who they were, but as it turned out, they were missionaries who were running the, uh, uh, an orphanage in Lebanon, and they happened to be Becky's parents that were running that orphanage at the time. They came to chi- visit the chief of the tribe, or visit the tribe, and if you're a guest of the tribe, you're a guest of the chief of the tribe. And uh, so when they saw me there, and so on, they thought I was uh, the son of the chief, and he said, no, his father's blind, and he, they're poor, and, you know, and things like that, and I'm taking care of him, I'm raising him. So they offered, they said, well, if you want to, you know, bring him to the orphanage, you will take him. So a week or two later, I found myself at the orphanage. So at the orphanage, I basically uh, was uh, taken in, I was cl- uh, scrubbed clean, uh, they had to shave my head and wash my head with kerosene to get rid of all the lice <laughs> and uh, uh, gave me clothes, place to sleep, and the orphanage became my home. Uh, about two years later, my mother showed up at the orphanage. She went to the uh, chief of the tribe's uh, wife and begged her and begged her and begged her to, to tell her where I was. And she said, she put him in a school, I don't know where, and they mentioned the village. Anyway, through some events and so on, I usually say my mother is the first GPS. <laughs> <laughs> she found her way to the orphanage. I honestly don't know how, and when I tried to get it out of her, she could not tell me how she got there. <laughs> but, but she got there. And by then I was nine years old, and and, uh, and so she wanted to take me because they were thinking, okay, I'm old enough now, I can take care of the sheep, I can help the family and so on. And she tried to me, and I refused to go with her. So, uh, because I was becoming comfortable. The orphanage was becoming my home. Besides, I've been away from my family for four years. So anyway, uh, so at the orphanage, we not being fed and clothed and sheltered and all of that, and educated and sent to school and that, but we were taught uh, the scriptures. And, uh, and through the ministry of the orphanage, I have came to know Christ. Uh, I got uh, 
to uh, uh, then uh, every child at the orphanage has what they call child sponsors, and some of you here may be child sponsors, and and uh, I know some of you here have been child sponsors for Kids Alive, and uh, so. Uh, I, uh, when I graduated from high school, my sponsors wrote me a letter and said, what are you going to do after high school? I said, I don't know. I'd like to go to college, but I don't have the means and so on. So they offered to pay for my college. And uh, so I attended college in Lebanon, and uh, I was there uh, two years. Uh, during that time, I uh, was called for a... Uh, uh, to serve in the, in the Syrian military because by then we had, because my family was in Syria, living in Syria, we got Syrian identities in the mid-60s. And so I was uh, 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 attending school and uh, the Syrian army, uh, I got my draft for the Syrian army, went to Syria thinking I can postpone military service because the law says anyone who's in it, you know, is in school can postpone their military service. So when I went to do that, they would not refuse to postpone military service, and I guess because I was not anyone. And uh, so they, I, one of the uh, uh, assistants to the president at the school uh, heard about my story, and, uh, and he knew that I would be being helped to go to school and, and so on. I think he looked at my grades, I don't know. <laughs> but... Uh, but he had compassion and, and felt sorry for me. And he said, basically, if you go to Syria, you'll be... Uh, my Syrian ID card today, if you look at it, it says education level is equivalent to fifth grade. And uh, so he said, if you go to Syria, you're literally illiterate. If you stay in Lebanon, you cannot get a decent job because your citizenship is Syrian. He said, you're really stuck. And uh, basically, then his, he and his wife offered to help me immigrate uh, to the U.S. I came to Pennsylvania, attended Messiah College in Pennsylvania, uh, finished my education there, uh, got a degree in math and physics. And uh, in those days was the early, early, early days of computers, the infancy days of computers. And computer companies and were swallowing up, you know, people who have uh, the technical uh, uh, education like math, physics, you know, engineering, and so on. So I uh, was offered three different jobs and I hadn't filled a single application yet. So I accepted the job with GE in San Jose, California, and, uh, and uh, things were going well. I was doing very well with the, uh, my job. Uh, I bought my first house at the age of 24 and so on. So when those things start happening to you, those successes in life, I started feeling, especially when I got three job offers with not filling a single application, oh boy, this country really needs me. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so uh, when, when uh, uh, over time and... and, and uh, Sometimes successes breed uh, undesired uh, th uh, things. So I started really thinking, boy, God gave me a new country, a new home, you know, a, uh, a, 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 a good place, good job, good income, you know, a lot of successes. Why do I want to go back home and face the, you know, 
the music that I was facing before leaving there. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But, uh, you know, I said, oh, forget about Lebanon, forget about Syria, forget that I was even grow, born there and so on. But this is my home. This is where I'm going to be. This is where I'm going to stay. And then the Lord has a way of talking to us when we start having a little bit of pride in us. <laughs> and uh, I remember hearing a sermon about the Jordan River. And the Jordan River starts in Lebanon at the foot of Mount Hermon and flows down into Israel. And the first body of water it dumps into is the Sea of Galilee. And the uh, Sea of Galilee, as you know, and, and, uh, and the children's story today is that Peter was a fisherman. That's what he fished in the Sea of Galilee. So the Sea of Galilee had life in it. And life, uh, and, to, and to provided life to others and so on. And then the Jordan River leaves the Sea of Galilee and heads down to the Dead Sea. And as the Dead Sea name means, it's really dead. There's no life, no life in the Dead Sea. And this message basically spoke to me, or the, uh, the theme of the message was, when, we, when God blesses us and we pass those blessings on to other people, are we like the Sea of Galilee? We have life and we pass life. We provide life to others. But when God blesses us and we can hoard and keep those blessings just to us, just like the Dead Sea gets fresh water from the Jordan River, but it goes nowhere. He says, if we receive blessings but never pass them on, we're like the Dead Sea. We're dead. You know. And that kind of struck to me, so my mind starts changing. Maybe I need to go back home. Maybe I need to start thinking about that. Although at that time, the possibility of going back home was almost uh, nil. Now, this is a very so small sermon about the journey, but I bet you if Pastor Corey was to preach that sermon, it'll be one hour, three points. This message. <laughs> I think it's a great sermon. Uh, all right, so let's back up here just a minute, and then, then I want to get into going back to, to Lebanon. Uh, first of all, um, you grew up, uh, Bedouins, are all Bedouins Muslim? Yes. Okay. So you grew up Muslim in a Muslim home. Mm -hmm. Your dad was Muslim, your parents. Uh, you became a Christian, mm -hmm. and that doesn't often go well uh, in, in the Middle East. Uh, so when you became a Christian, you were, what did you say, 13 or something like that? 14. Around in there, mid-teens, mid mm. something like that. Um, and at first you thought, I'm not going to tell my family about it. But then... Uh, something, ha then you started to like change your mind and then something happened that convinced you to go back and, and that you needed to f tell your family. Can you tell that it's, story? It's more like forced me. <laughs> yeah, forced you. <laughs> uh, as I said, at, at the orphanage, we were being taught the scriptures. We had devotion every day. We were memorizing scriptures, memorizing their competition for memorizing verses and so on. One time I got the the, uh, the, the prize for memorizing 202 verses, you know. And uh, so I, I uh, but at the age of 13, 14, you started thinking. You know, you, my parents are Muslim. My father is Sunni and my mother is Shiite. 
And the, 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 what's going on in the Muslim world today, those things are trying to kill each other. You know, seriously, my father's side of the family, mother's side of the family have um, so much animosity. And Becky and I are the only two people that go between the two families. And we do that every time we're there on, on a trip. But at the age of 13, I start really thinking I need to make a decision. I have to make a decision. Now, why did I think that? I don't know. Okay, but I just... That's how I felt. As I need to feel. The people that are feeding me, clothing me, sheltering me, educating me, you know, all of that, and, you know, are Christians. But on the other side, I have my father's faith, my mother's faith, my uncles, my tribe, my relatives. And, and which one of those do I want to choose? And I knew I can't be jumping on the fence on both sides, kind of going back and forth. I, I knew I just have to uh, make a decision. And the decision came, is, I was about 14 years old, is that I came to the realization that on, on my, mother, or my family's side is I cannot think of a single individual who raised a finger to help me in my time of need, you know. Yes, the chief of the tribe took me from home at the age of five, but I think part of it is to cover up, you know, family feuds or family dispute or, you know, it, it's not really because of compassion or because of, uh, you know, care or any of that. And so I start thinking, those are the, the Christians, you know, the orphanage is doing this for me, my side of the family, like they said, no one has raised a finger in my time of need to help me out. How easy is that decision? Which one of those do you want to be part of? So it was easy for me to, to decide that I really want to follow Christ. So during a chapel service, I was attending a, 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 a Nazarene missionary school in Lebanon. And uh, during chapel time, uh, the message was about hell and heaven. And... Uh, and it scared me too, you know what? <laughs> and so the Lord started speaking to me as I was sitting in the pew of the chapel. And uh, he said, you know, if you get persecuted, you get uh, beaten up, you get uh, uh, even killed for following me, what is that compared to eternity? You know, you, this is only short years here. You, you talk about eternity. And I, as I tell people is that even at that age, I, I think I knew, I realized what the, uh, Einstein relativity theory is meant. <laughs> and uh, so with that thing, uh, thought, I walked forward and I accepted uh, Christ. But five years went by and never said a thing uh, to my parents. But during this time, every time I go to visit, I, I went I started going visiting my family at the age of 11. It was the first time I made. My mother came and visited me once, maybe twice. And then after that, at the age of 11, I started going by myself uh, to uh, uh, Syria. And while I'm there, usually about the age of 15, 16, 17, my dad is a pretty curious person. And uh, so he would ask me a lot, so what do they teach you at the orphanage? What do, you know, what do they feed you? What do they do that? You know? And then he was curious about uh, the people running the orphanage. Uh, back home, 
the way to show respect uh, to a person is to call them after their oldest son's name. So my, my, in Lebanon, they refer to me as Abu Brent, the father of Brent. Becky is Umma Brent, the mother of Brent. Well, the Swansons have the oldest son was Danny. So he always referred to them as Abu Danny and M. Danny, the father of Danny and the mother of Danny. So he'd ask me, how is Abu Danny? How is M. Danny? What is and then he gets a little bit more personal. He goes, uh, there's, there's something fascinating about him is why would people from America leave America? For us, America was like next step to heaven. You know, you're almost there. And why would people come from America to take care of individual of kids that they're not obliged to? And, and with Muslims, you take care of your family members, but you don't see a Muslim really adopting anybody. I don't know of any Muslim that adopted kids, okay? Or, you know, taking in other family members. So that is not something common in Islam. And so he was asked, why would they come from America to, to take care of kids they're not obliged to, for, to, do, the, to do that for? And one of them is his son. And uh, so I say it's because of their faith, their conviction, and so on. And, and he you know, would ask me, so what is their faith? Do they read the Quran? No, they don't read the Quran. Do they smoke? No, they don't smoke. Do they drink? No, they don't drink, you know. And so what do they believe in? So I would take the chance of think, reading things from him, from the scriptures, and, and uh, basically, you know, in First James, uh, in James chapter 1, towards the end, it says that pure and holy religion is taking care of the orphans and the widows in their time of need. So I would, you know, tell them about some of the things about their faith. And there's some of the things that, you know, they, they were, we were being taught. And, uh, and he, in his mind, kind of developed this grandiose ideas of the Swansons being righteous people, holy people, you know, loving people, caring people, people doing things that he'd never seen anyone around him do, you know, kind of thing. So he had this wonderful idea of, of the Swansons. So... At the age of 19, I was working for the uh, Christian Missionary Alliance Church after school. And uh, the Alliance in, in the Middle East would have a conference every so many years. And in 2019, uh, they had their conference in Lebanon. So they, they came from Syria, Jordan, and Lebanon. And being working for them, I had, I had to help out. So every, once during a... Uh, the conference, they take one day to go on a field trip. And uh, the field trip was to a river. And uh, the, uh, I went to play with, with the kids in the river, and I had my Syrian ID card in me. In Lebanon, you do not, you do not go anywhere without an ID card on you. So I had my ID card in my pocket. Why did they have it in my front pocket? I don't know. But that's where I happened to have it. And went to the plain river and I scooped down to pick up a rock or look at a rock or check a fish or some of that, and my ID fell into the river. And the river was flowing, and I screamed and yelled and trying to get somebody's attention, but the kids were having so much fun and so many yells and so much noise that my ID went down the river and into the Mediterranean, and, uh, and uh, probably some fish swallowed it and stole my identity. <laughs> and... and uh, so I was 
did not know what to do. I could not replace it in Lebanon, and the only option I had was to go to Syria. And because uh, I've checked with every office in Lebanon, government office, how I can do it. They all said, you have to go back to Syria. You have to go back to Syria. But I don't have an idea. How do I go back to Syria? How do I cross the border? Well, you figure it out, kind of thing. So I was sitting at my desk at, uh, uh, in, uh, at the orphanage in my room and uh, contemplating, how am I going to do that? How am I going to get there? How, which way am I going to take it? All of a sudden, I heard a voice behind me say, if you will tell your parents that you follow me, I will, you know, uh, get you through. The voice was so real that I had to look behind me to see who's talking to me, you know. So I realized it's Christ talking to me. I said, okay, Lord, I will tell them. That's it. You know, it's been five years that I haven't, you know. And uh, so I went to downtown Beirut to catch a bus that will take you to the, to, to the town, the nearest town to the borders. And uh, the, usually the buses are, have you ever seen the movie, The Gods Must Be Crazy? Yeah. You see that bus that the teacher took to the village of that? They got ghosts loaded in there, chicken loaded in there, you know, fruits, everything loaded in that bus. And that bus takes a whole day from Beirut to the town and the border town. And, uh, but sometimes that bus is more broken down than it is running. <laughs> so I went down there to catch the bus to go to Syria, and of course the bus was broken down. And when the bus broke down, everyone who has a car, personal car, would use it for transportation. So I got into one of those cars and, and uh, headed to Syria, and I was sitting right behind the driver. And uh, the, when we got to uh, near the borders, there was a point that normally there is no checkpoint. But this time, there was a huge contingency of military people there checking every vehicle. And people in the vehicle that I was in were amazed what's going on. They haven't seen this you know, before or, some, or in a long time. Anyway, so there was something serious that had happened. And uh, so we're in line, inching our way to the checkpoint, to the inspectors, and we get there, they check the car, they check underneath, they open the hood, they open the trunk, they check the drivers, and then they start checking the passengers. They start with the, the cars were the older style, they had a bench in the front, so you had three passengers, the driver and two passengers, and back we have three passengers, and, and I was behind the driver. And so they start checking the two passengers in the front. Where you been? Where are you going? Where are you in? And all that interrogation. Then they come to the back seat, and uh, they start with the passenger on the right, uh, doing interrogation. And the, and the closer they got to me, I was sweating so much that you could take my clothes, wring them, wring them, whatever it is, and you get a bucket of sweat out of them. And just praying, what, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And then finally because, checked the person. Because he didn't have an ID. Because I had no ID with me, nothing, no identity. So they checked the person in the middle, and they see his ID, look at his ID, and where you've been, all of this, all of this. And the person checking looks in the van, in the car like that, to see he missed nobody, and tell the driver to go. So that was a sign from the Lord that it's time. So I got home. 
And uh, because my dad is blind, usually when I greet him and so on, I sit right next to him, and he just, his hands are all over me, trying to see how much weight I've gotten, how fat I am, <laughs> how big my head is, and, and, uh, and all of that, you know. And then with, with him going through all of that, and he said, I said, Dad, I got something to tell you, you know. I said, I have become a Christian. And immediately he pulled off of me. And, uh, and he, uh, the, my mother comes into the room and sees that we're kind of apart here, you know. Not, he's not doing the, his usual thing all over me. And she goes, Hussein, what's wrong? Hussein is my father's name. He goes, your son has become a Christian. And my mother screams and yells, and she goes off, and she goes to another. We had two rooms home. By then, we have moved out of the tent, in a, living in a mud house, and in a, a dirt house. Uh, and so she goes off, and then a few minutes later, I go, and I go, I find she was cooking dinner. I said, Mom, anything I can do to help you? She looks at me, and she goes, if I'd known this was going to happen to my son, I would have rather not had a son. So I walked out of there, walked a distance from the house, found a bush, sat behind the bush, and just cried and sobbed and cried. And it, Satan takes a seat on my shoulder and starts whispering in my ear, See what you did? Did you have to do that? Did you have to tell him? Couldn't you keep your mouth shut? Couldn't you keep quiet? You know, you know how Satan plays off. And it starts putting all the doubt in my mind, you know, about telling my parents this. And uh, make this kind of time here. <laughs> so I, uh, next day, went and got my ID card, came back, and... Uh, Next day, uh, everybody goes to work. My mother and my sister go work in the field. My brother took, uh, we had two cows at the time, and my brother took the cows out, and it was my dad and myself at home. And my dad would sit, sit in the shade of the house. He had a, a mat sitting there and so on. So I read, went to him, and I said, Dad, would you like a cup of tea? And he goes, who's going to make it? I said, I will. Normally back home, the women make the tea. The men sit down and order the woman around, get me tea, get me coffee, get me water, whatever it is. So I said, I'll make it. He said, do you know where the tea is? I said, I can find it. Uh, we look here, you'll find the tea. You look here, you'll find the sugar. You'll find here the match for the light. The, uh, the, we had a kerosene uh, stove uh, and so on. So I went and made the tea and brought a pot of tea and, and sat down. And, and I kept my distance from him because my dad carried a knife in his pocket that was used for slaughtering sheep and goats, and especially big animals. And people would come and borrow that from him because he sit all day long sharpening that thing. And I was afraid he was going to use that on me. And my father, when he gripped you, he gripped you, you know. So I have kept my distance, you know, from him, kind of, you know, just think, if he sees our moves for me, I have enough time to jump away. <laughs> So I poured him a glass of tea, a cup of tea, and he drank it. We drink a tea in glasses. He drank his, I drank mine, I poured him a second one, a third one, and finally my dad broke the silence. And he goes, what in the world possessed you to become a Christian? And so I had 
few verses in the Quran that I shared with him. One of them says, Christ is the, from the Spirit of God and the Word of God bestowed on Mary. Another verse that talks about, you know, uh, different prophets prophets, we help, uh, we give them gifts and abilities and so on, but to Jesus, we strengthened him with the Holy Spirit and kind of thing. So capitalizing on those, some of those verses in the Quran, and I came to tell my dad uh, that, you know, I reading to him from the Gospel of John, first chapter, you know, where it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And, uh, and that, uh, and if I said, do you separate God, you know, from his Word? No. And uh, because we have a saying in Arabic, a man is at his Word. You know, your, your Word is actually more important than you are. And anyway, and then I said, well, can God do anything? In Islam, it's a blasphemy to say that God cannot do something. And I said, can God, God make his word into a person, into a human, you know, into a flesh? Oh, yeah, he can, but he did not. I said, yeah, he can, but he did. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so anyway, and they said, the, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we dwelt, beheld his glory as the only begotten son of the... And I said, that's whom I believe in, you know. And I said, then went on to tell him, and those who believed in him, to them he gave power to become the children of God. And I said, if Muhammad told me if I believe in him, he'll, he'll give me the power to become the child of God, I'll believe in him. If Buddha tells me that, I'll believe in him. But Christ is the only one who said, you know, to them who believed in him, he'll give the power to become the children of God. And what does a man want more than uh, anything else in the world? I mean, more than... You know, to be called the child of God more than being the king of Saudi Arabia or the strongest man in the world, or the president of the biggest country or the richest man in the world, the most famous man in the world, whatever it is, you know, this is the greatest honor anybody can have is to be called the child of God. And he you know, paused for a while and he goes, do this one since believe that Abu Dhani Imdani, do Abu Dhani Imdani believe this? I said, yeah, they believe this, and they taught me this. And he paused again, and he goes, everything I heard about Abu Dhani, now up to the, you know, my dad and Abu Dhani, Dhani never, never met face to face until many years later. So up to this point, they had not seen each other, or they had not met face to face. And he, and he goes, everything I heard about Abu Dhani and Dhani, they're good people, they're holy people, they're righteous people, they're, you know, uh, saints, and on and on. And he had this kind of, you know, image about them. He said, are, are you telling me you're becoming, you're taking on the faith of Abu Dhani and Dhani? I said, yes, I am. And he said, I have no problem with that. They're good people. I, I'm be proud that if you take their son. And from that on, the word got into the tribe. Everybody knew that I have become a Christian. People would come to me with a lot of insult. Oh, you infidel. Oh, you are, you know, uh, all, all kinds of names, calling, and so on. How could you turn your back on Islam, the greatest religion, the latest religion, Muhammad, the seal of all the prophets, and Muhammad, the, uh, the greatest prophet, and on and on, and you infidel. How could you, you know, you know God's going to burn you to hell for doing that, and so on. And the one who became my defender was my dad. 
Okay, we're running a little long here. I uh, still have two pages. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so maybe, maybe the short version of the story. Um, one of the things that, so I think you can start to see how those threads, how Jed, uh, how Jed and Becky have had 45 people in their home, you know, radical hospitality. I think you can see where that comes from. I think you can start to see where it comes from, why he wants people to know about Jesus as well. But there is actually a specific event or actually that passage that we read earlier from Mark chapter 5. Um, uh, because what, maybe, maybe you don't know this about Jed, but he goes back to Lebanon a lot. In fact, probably for a lot of you who are new, if you haven't met Jed, he has probably been in Lebanon. Um, and, and he goes back. He has a son there. Brent is there for a long mm -hmm. time. He worked at the orphanage where mm -hmm. Jed grew up. Mm -hmm. uh, but now he's, off, you know, he's doing other things there, but married a Lebanese gal, and, and so they, they live in Lebanon. And Lebanon is not a great place to go back to right now. The economy is terrible. Syria is not a great place. It's war-torn and just a lot of strife there. Uh, and yet you continue to go back over and over mm -hmm. and it was kind of my understanding that if you would, if you could, you would like to move back there even. Mm -hmm. Why? Uh, on this last trip back home, and uh, the, when we're back there, the, not a day goes by without having approached by two, three, five, ten people sometimes asking me about why did you become a Christian? Okay? And then the next question is that what is it about Islam you don't like and so on? Uh, at one point we were sitting uh, on the porch at one of my niece's place and there were, it happened to be all nieces. There was about five, six of them. All of us having coffee. And one of my nieces asked me, first question she asked me, he said, do you ever think of go, coming back to Islam? And I asked her, said, can you give me one thing, a reason, good reason why I need to come back to Islam? And, well, the Quran is the word of God. I said, that's not enough. You know, some, something like that. Then she asked me the second question. She said, well, you know, we've had a lot of people from our tribe that have left and never came back. Actually, one of them, the son of the tribe, uh, son of the chief of the tribe, who got uh, left for Saudi Arabia uh, back in the late 50s and never been heard of. And his, one of his kids came to visit one time, once, and uh, they were there for about an hour and left and never have been heard from again. And she goes, so why do you keep coming back? I start out by telling a, a, a story that uh, I witnessed. I was traveling between northern town and city in Syria to Damascus to sign some papers. Halfway, the bus stops in a village, uh, and uh, when, when the bus pulled over, I looked, and in the square of town, there was a large gathering. And there was a truck there, and there was a person that, in the back of the truck. Uh, and I told the person I was traveling with, you know, 
Don't let the bus go. I'm going to go see what's happening there. Oh, don't worry. There's probably a fight or there's some people got on top fight or something. Don't worry about it. I said, no, I want to go see what's happening, but make sure the bus doesn't leave without me. Okay, okay, okay. So I took off running and I went there and there was a man chained in the back of one of those dirt. You see them on the highway, dirt hauling trucks, rock hauling trucks or some of that. And he was chained to the, in, in, the, in the box of that truck. And I looked and he was yelling and roaring like a bear, foaming from the mouth and pulling at those chains. And, and, and I asked one of the men next to me, I said, what is going on? What's wrong with that man? And he told me, malmus, in the Arabic word for possessed. No. And that reminded me of the story that we read today in the scriptures. So I told them, when I related the story to, to them, I said, there's a story like that in the Bible too. I said, so I re- recalled to them the story that we read from Mark uh, 5 today. And I said, at the verse 18, uh, 19, when the person healed, when Jesus and his disciples got on the boat and the man wanted to go with Jesus, and Jesus said no, and Jesus told him to, uh, excuse me, go to your people, to your family, and tell them how merciful God has been to you. And God has been very merciful to me. From the, all the years of my life, he brought people that were merciful, compassionate, caring people, and God has been merciful. And when I learned this story years and years and years ago, and that spoke directly to me, is Christ was telling me, you go to your own people and tell them how merciful God or, you know, the Lord has been to you. And I told them, this is why I keep coming here so I can tell you how merciful God has been to me. And you all know my life story. You all know my history. You all know my family. You all know, you know, what's going on. And, and of all the people, God has been most merciful to me. And that's why I keep going back there. All right, it makes sense, doesn't it? Um, there's, a, there's a song now that you hear on the radio, a worship song. Um, it's called Gratitude by Brandon Lake. And, uh, and this is kind of true of a, of a lot of worship songs that, um, that we sing, is we say, well, God has been good to me, God has been merciful to me, and so I will sing. You know, there's countless songs that are like that. I'll stand here, I'll raise my arms, I'll sing, all of that. And that's fine. That's good. We'll sing. We'll continue to do that. But early on in the book of Luke, one of the things that we found was, was that, number one, we are not the hero of our story, right? It's God. Everything that we do uh, is motivated by gratitude for God's mercy, But the way we show our gratitude toward God, the way that Jesus asked for us to show gratitude toward God is by being merciful toward other people. And so you can see all throughout Jed's life, 
in, in taking people in uh, when they have nowhere else to stay, in going back and telling his people how merciful Jesus has been to him. What an incredible, incredible uh, motivation to have. And, uh, and the reason I asked Jed to come and tell his story today is because I think that should be all of us. That we should all be just so aware of how merciful God has been to us, so aware of that, that it changes everything about us. So let's thank Jed for telling his story today. Just one more thing. And I'm going to request that you pray for, there are a number of people that have accepted Christ. One of them is my sister, my nephew, my other sister. And a lot of them are being receptive and asking a lot of questions. And uh, many of them have, some of them have gone to church with me uh, when I was there and so on. So the Lord is working through them. So just keep them in your prayers. Lord, we thank you for Jed and for his story. And we thank you for the mercy that you have had on him that has been very evident. Uh, throughout his life. And, uh, and God, I, I pray for Jed's family and, uh, and the friends that he sees when he goes back to Lebanon. God, I, I just pray, I pray for their salvation. I pray for receptivity to the gospel. And I pray that, that through uh, Jed's words and through his good deeds, that, that they would see Jesus very clearly, that they would see you very clearly. Um, and as they do, God, I pray that they would respond to that. And God, I pray for our congregation as we hear Jed's story. Lord, I, man, I, I pray that your mercy in our lives would have that same impact on us, on the way that, that we live our lives, um, that it would change everything about how we look at other people and think about other people and that we would be willing to offer the same mercy that you gave to us. I pray that it would be so. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast from Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We hope this week's sermon helped you learn to know and love Jesus more and serve him in your unique place in the world. If you have feedback or questions, get in touch with us by emailing podcast at wakeparkchurch.org.